Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, June 5th. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We'll get the Mayor's views on the Black Lives Matter protests that have been held in our city over the past week and his reaction to comments made by local business and W. Brett Wilson on social media Wednesday. Next, we hear about the many safety protocols presented in a new app that aims to ensure a safer return to work for employees post-pandemic. Then we head stateside and catch up with Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. We hear the latest on the protests, which continue to capture headlines in the U.S. Movie theaters remain closed, but that doesn't mean you can't find something entertaining to watch. We get the latest offerings streaming to a couch near you. It's our weekly segment with Brett McGarry of the Couch Potatoes. And finally, it's Neighbours Helping Neighbours during this time of pandemic. We'll hear the story of another nominee for our Community Champions Contest. 7.43 and joining us with our weekly update on the state of the city. We're joined this morning by Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Mayor, we wanted to just start off by giving you the chance to respond to the story that's been topping the news for a couple of days. That was that was you firing back against a, a hateful tweet directed at you by Brett Wilson, suggesting you played the race card to win your third term as mayor. And I know you've spoken about it before. If you wanted to just take a moment and address that, we'd love you to do that. You know, there's so many more important things uh, for us to be talking about. And I think the fact that we're talking about this is a bit symptomatic of the issue we have. So let me say, first of all, that, you know, I saw that your boss, John Voss, uh, came out yesterday very clearly and said that Mr. Wilson won't be on the station anymore, which, you know, I, I really appreciate that decisive leadership. But that's also two years after he said we should hang people that disagree with him. And after he has made all kinds of hateful, insulting, demeaning comments to all kinds of people, politicians he disagrees with, environmentalists, he has a particular issue, it seems, uh, with people who look different um, or uh, have a different sort of power. And so ultimately, it's not even worth our time talking about this, but I think it is worth our time reflecting on how someone like that was on the station this week He's not an engineer. He doesn't know anything about transportation or the Green Line, but somehow we gave him a platform despite all of this. And I think it's worth us reflecting on why we do that and how that detracts from the important work of honest dialogue and the messy work of building communities. Well, glad you shared your thoughts with us on that topic. Mm-hmm. Let's move to the business at hand, the city of Calgary. And I want to get your thoughts on the protests that we've seen in Calgary, the peaceful protests How do you think the uh, people have been doing? Well, you know, I think that I'm very proud um, that the protests have been peaceful and they've been thoughtful. I'm very proud of the way the women and men of the Calgary Police Service have not just handled the protests, but used that as an opportunity to learn and listen themselves. Now, all that said, the reason I talk to you every Friday is because we're in a public health pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. And so certainly um, I get very nervous when I see those mass gatherings and I'm glad people are wearing masks. And I know it was the first protest in history where you had to put hand sanitizer on before you were allowed (laughs) to join. Um, But, you know, this stuff does make me nervous as a public health issue as well. And so that's what you've got to balance. The real need and desire we're seeing to have an honest conversation about what it means to grow up uh, in this society as someone who doesn't look like the mainstream with the need to protect the public health. So I'm proud of the way people have conducted themselves. I'm proud that with words like action and change, we also heard words like love and understanding and listening uh, during these protests. But 
to be very practical about it. If you feel that you have to attend something like this, wear a mask, use your hand sanitizer, um, double down on your own efforts uh, to be careful not to be a spreader afterwards. And now that we have drop-in uh, COVID testing, consider getting yourself tested afterwards as well. And before we let you go, just wanted to touch on phase two for our city, for our province. Do you think we might be able to move that, uh, that date a little further, a little closer and get things uh, reopening a little more quickly? The numbers are looking really good, um, and that's because of people's actions. It's not because it's been a hoax, right? It's because we've worked really hard mm-hmm. to keep the numbers down. Uh, and they are looking really good. Uh, I want to make sure that we've got sufficient time between the phases to see if there's been an uptick in cases. That takes about two weeks. Our last phase was June 1st. The province, I think, is thinking about uh, going to stage two sometime next week or the week after, and I think that's sufficient time. Um, I wouldn't want to go too, too much earlier than that, but the numbers are looking really good. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, here's to continued success on the Calgary front because I think we have been doing the right things. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much. I think, it's been, I think it's been great. I'm really proud of our citizens uh, for doing the right thing. And even in these tough times where it's easy to be angry, let's remember that we get to live in the best place in the world, and that's because of the people that live here. Agree. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend, everyone. You too. You too, Mayor. That is Mayor Nahed Nenshi. 8-12 on your Friday morning. Obviously imperative for businesses to have a safe, secure, and efficient way to welcome back workers post-pandemic. A Calgary company is making it easier to do just that, helping people reduce health risks and facilitate a safer environment to try to minimize the risk of any new outbreak. We're joined this morning by the CEO of Connectus Global, Mike Anderson. Hi, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so Calgary Made, tell us all about your COVID-19 quarantine compliance app. Certainly, certainly. So I guess uh, like most folks, a couple of months ago, we were looking down the looking down the road and things were looking pretty grim in uh, project land as a lot of our core business strategies were being pushed and, uh, you know, a lot, not a lot of support uh, in bringing some of those forward. So so we put on our thinking hats and tried to understand what means the most to private enterprise, especially in this return to work strategy. Um, we identified through our partnership with Honeywell four pillars of the pandemic. Those would include the temperature scanning, data aggregation around risk and compliance and self-declarations and all those kinds of administrative and governance tasks, <clears throat> the COVID testing um, by regionalized government bodies and the serology tests. And then, of course, on the PPE supply. What we did is put those solutions in uh, in kind of this pandemic response tool. We invented the QC clock application to aggregate and automate all of those data sets. So we've put out PPE to me, which is a subscription-based PPE service for private enterprise to order. Um, like when I look at supply chains, especially globally, I play in the oil and gas space. So if I need to get PPE, I got a lot of people I need to go to, but if I've got a hair salon or I've got a coffee shop or something, where do I go to get my PPE other than like Staples and Home Depot? So we've opened up the supply chain. People can order their subscription PPE online. The next part of the pandemic response, of course, is on that temperature, temperature scanning and automating that. We don't expect uh, and wouldn't expect folks to just hire a person to stand out front and scan all their employees every morning, write them down in a binder and put that back on the shelf. So we put out a LR camera, which detects within 
half a degree Fahrenheit your temperature automatically and then rolls that into a data set. The COVID testing kits put together with the um, serology tests supplied by Makura, they are FDA approved for people to order and do their own uh, antibody test in the comfort of their own home. And then the last piece, of course, is the QC clock application that you can enter, ingest, and automate all of these data sets to supply your company or your your business a aggregated data or aggregated risk score of based on your employees' temperatures, the COVID testing results, the amount of PPE that you have coming to your business, and taking that Yelp model to say, <clears throat> my business has a low risk because I have satisfied all of the pillars of the pandemic response. Okay, so many different pieces, but the app is, is like the hub. Is that correct? The app is the hub. Okay, correct. so do you, do you envision one specific type of business using this, or is it dependent on how many employees? Uh, where, where do you see it rolling out then? Um, all private enterprise. Mm-hmm. So our, our packages are, are uh, priced to support all levels of business, whether you have two employees or whether you have 5,000. So this helps business owners and companies, obviously, behind the scenes. On the flip side, what would be the bonus for the employees going back to work at those job sites then? <clears throat> well, two, probably two main points for that for an employee's safety. One is on the mental health, um, to understand that your employer is doing everything they can to support that return to work strategy and you're safe. The thing with the QC Clock app is it trends that employee's self-declarations, daily check-ins, health practices, all those things to the business. So when I walk into my store every day, I can look at the score of the store, look at my employees' dashboard and say, my employees have done everything that I've requested of them. It gives me that peace of mind for employers and employees to understand that we have satisfied all of the requirements. The other piece, um, obviously, on automating that especially for employees, a lot of the regulations that are coming down from government bodies globally all fall on the employees, right? The employer puts out the governance strategy, but it's the employees that have to wipe down that counter every two hours, mm-hmm. have to go and find that PPE, do their declaration. Like it's, it's all trickling down to that employee and like they don't have enough to do. Um, we've just laid a whole nother layer of administrative and physical work that they have to do that, you know, if they didn't have time for it before, they certainly don't now to try to okay. facilitate and Absolutely. do business. Where can, where, can we, where can we download the app and get more info? Yeah, so you can go on online right now in our Connect Us Global page, okay. info at com. send it through, and we send through the download links. We That's are fine. under application right now for the Google and iOS mm-hmm. Apple Store, so that should be coming out here over the next week, week and a half mm-hmm. for businesses. And it is open to anybody okay. that just wants to, uh, like you said, automate their yep. information capture and, and uh, contribute to the return to work. Sounds great. Thank you very much for the info, Mike. We appreciate it. Certainly. That is Mike Anderson, CEO of Connectus Global. 849 now, and it is official. Jasper is open for adventure as provincial restrictions lift and regional travel resumes. So what does life look like in Jasper right now? What can we expect if we make a visit out there? With some answers, we're joined this morning by the president and CEO of Tourism Jasper, James Jackson. Hi, James. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. We're so happy that uh, life is getting a little bit back to normal in Jasper. Tell us if we might see some changes, though, if we make the drive out there. 
Well, if you're driving from Calgary, I would just say that Icefields Parkway right now is in phenomenal shape. It's one of the best drives in the world, so that's something to look forward to. In terms of changes, though, uh, I think it's not unlike uh, things going on in Calgary uh, with regard to social distancing within uh, hospitality establishments. Um, There's certain operational changes within uh, attractions and that kind of thing, like you would expect, uh, lower occupancy loads and that kind of thing. Within hotels, uh, luckily, Jasper is very fortunate to have a lot of cabins and a lot of properties with exterior doors. So you're actually not going to get um, cornered in a, in a hallway or, or an elevator or a place to feel vulnerable uh, for physical distancing. So we're really fortunate in that sense. So you can come down and get that Jasper experience. Does it uh, just seem, uh, you know, as far as what you can do, what you can see, does it just seem like there's people more sparsely placed with those 50% restrictions? Yeah, you know, uh, right now there uh, there's a lot of room in Jasper. I, I would say open is a bit of an understatement. You know, Jasper is a big place as it is uh, with our wide open landscapes. And, and, you know, there's just plenty of room to, to space out. Um, at the same time, uh, without the international visitors that uh, we, we usually enjoy in the summer, um, there's, there's a bit of extra room. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I bet. So uh, we've got hotels, we've got restaurants, shops, everything is open and, and the bus tours as well? Yeah, so we've, we've got uh, the majority of our tours uh, opening from motorcycle rides to food tours to wildlife viewing tours, that kind of thing. Um, almost, I would say, two-thirds to three-quarters of our hotels are opening. Uh, certain properties are, are uh, taking their time just to ensure that they're adhering to all the correct and exceeding all the correct protocols. Um, but I would say by, by June 19th, everything in the entire destination will be open. So I guess it's a case if you have a favorite hotel or if you've never been and, and or it's been years, checking ahead would probably be a, a good idea instead of just rolling up and, and looking for lodging. Yeah, we we're really asking folks to come prepared, and that don't, that not only means for their planning of their trip um, to ensure that they understand the protocols that are in place at whatever establishment they're going to visit, but it's also about bringing uh, their COVID kit with their mask and their wipes and their hand sanitizers. But perhaps most importantly, I think it's about coming prepared with uh, with a bit of patience. You know, this is a challenging situation for everybody, regardless of of your position, and so there there there's been some changes, uh, but they're minor and they're for everyone's safety. And so I think just come with some patience. And at the end of the day, hopefully it's a vacation and and you can uh, relax along the way. And really, James, as you mentioned, you know, without the international travelers, I know you depend on that income from them. But it's kind of good news for us locally to be able to make that trip and not have as many people. So it might entice people out to Jasper, those who, who hadn't gone before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, May through September, we, we enjoy 90% occupancy and see about 2.5 million visitors a year. Uh, this year, or for the last about 90 days, we've been under 5%, uh, similarly to other, other mountain destinations. But um, I think moving forward, we're probably expecting 30 to 40% occupancy, 50 if we're absolutely lucky. And so I think that provides a great opportunity for, for Albertans to be able to explore their own backyard mm-hmm. and, and for Calgarians to make that, like I said, beautiful drive up to Jasper and, and enjoy Enjoy a bit of space. Absolutely. So you're the CEO of Tourism Jasper. Uh, you know the uh, the town like the back of your hand, right? Uh, well, I, I'd like to think so. <laughs> you like the? Uh, have you ever uh, been to the Raven Bistro? I sure have. I'm, ha- I'm very familiar. Have you ever tried? They have a cocktail on that menu called the Bocephus cocktail. Have you ever Have you ever tried that? You know, I, I'm not sure I have. I'll okay. have to ask my, my good friend Webby, um, yes. the server over there, uh, for, a, for, a, for a cup of that uh, have, this weekend. You have to try it because it's a cocktail at the Raven Bistro in Jasper that's named after my son. 
Wow. Both Cephas. Okay. Yes, I happen to be related to the owners of the Raven Maester. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, and, and when you're there, you know, it's way different than Banff. It feels really good to be in, in Jasper. So we're very excited uh, that you have uh, brought this news to us, James. Yeah, well, we're, we're excited to open. Uh, and if anybody has any questions or anything like that, I would just encourage them to check out our website, jasper.travel slash venture again. Good stuff. Thanks. That is uh, James Jackson, president and CEO of Tourism Jasper. Protests continue south of the border. And in fact, a couple of officers in Buffalo, New York now have been suspended without pay after a video of pushing an elderly protester. But the, pro- the, uh, the protests continue in Washington as well. And joining us from there, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, Jackson Prosco. Hi, Jackson. How are you this morning? Good morning. Thanks for joining us. So latest on what's happening. Uh, do we have more protests planned today? More than likely, I'm assuming. Absolutely, yeah. And it sounds like there'll be even bigger protests here on Saturday. Uh, at this hour, in fact, uh, the city has given permission to protesters to paint a giant mural on the street in front of the White House that reads Black Lives Matter. And it will probably stretch for two or three blocks by the time it's finished. That's how big the letters are. Wow, beautiful. We're hearing some details that there may be a lawsuit when it comes to officials uh, using chemicals uh, to, to kind of quash some of these protests. What do we know about this? That's right. The ACLU has filed a lawsuit uh, against uh, the White House and other officials uh, over that incident we saw take place on Monday in which uh, a peaceful protest was interrupted by uh, tear gas and smoke bombs and pepper spray uh, outside the White House. And then, of course, we know a short time later, the president stepped out the front door of the White House and, and held that photo op at the church across the street. So it looks like a lawsuit via the protesters. They are lawyers involved, obviously, in this one. Does it look like it could turn into something big? Yeah, it's by the ACLU uh, and uh, a few other civil rights groups that have filed this. Uh, It's not clear where this will go, but I think it's just a sense that people are pushing back against some of the police tactics Mm -hmm. that we've witnessed. We're hearing some more about the other three police officers that have been charged in the death of George Floyd. And uh, kind of surprising to hear the tenure of some of them, uh, not uh, months, not years, but but even days on the uh, police force. Yeah, two of the three other uh, lawyers say they had been on the job for just three or four days at this point, uh, and they also both say that uh, the officers spoke up. One of them uh, essentially said that the tactic of pinning George Floyd to the ground wasn't right uh, and questioned that, and the other one suggested rolling him onto his side during the arrest. Uh, the third officer uh, uh, is accused of actually blocking a bystander who tried to intervene, and his lawyer says he's now fully cooperating with the investigation. And the body of George Floyd is expected to actually travel around to different locations in the U.S. this weekend as people memorialize him, correct? That's right. I believe to North Carolina this weekend and then to Houston, where he spent most of his life, uh, where he will be laid to rest uh, next week. Coronavirus has not stopped during these protests. And and now I'm hearing, uh, reading this morning, that over 1,000 coronavirus deaths reported in the past 24 hours uh, from this morning to yesterday morning. Uh, Are you still expecting to see these uh, numbers spike over the next few days? Yeah, I mean, they have certainly been very slow to decline. We're still seeing more than 20,000 new cases across the U.S. every single day. And now what's happening is that in at least 19 states, the case numbers are actually increasing. Uh, Florida is seeing really troubling spikes in its numbers. So is North Carolina. So is Texas. And the list goes on and on and on. And of course, the question is now whether these protests will be a vector for the further spread and further outbreak of the virus. That's something we probably won't know for a week or two because of the incubation time of the protests. But I can tell you that 
uh, here in Washington and in New York City, for example, they're telling people who have participated in these protests to get tested for COVID-19. And keep in mind that these are situations where you've got uh, irritants, respiratory irritants being deployed like tear gas and smoke bombs and pepper spray that not only make people cough, which is, of course, how the virus spreads, but can also make them more susceptible to serious illness from respiratory viruses. You've been on the scene and you've been on the street in D.C. Are you seeing protesters wearing masks, a large percentage, or uh, is everybody wearing a mask? Yeah, almost everyone is wearing a mask. Actually, it's kind of uh, surprising the fact that the police and military who are here in Washington, for the most part, are not wearing masks because it's impossible for anyone in these situations to maintain any sort of social distancing. Uh, I can tell you that uh, for ourselves and the crowds, we're definitely wearing masks because uh, there's just no way to keep uh, any sort of physical distance. But uh, again, most of the protesters are wearing them as well. And Jackson, I actually saw you tweeting out too that, you know, people are really being good and picking up litter and handing out snacks and water. Has it been, you know, a bit of an eye-opener to see how people are behaving on the front lines of these protests? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to keep in mind, and, and I think sometimes the context gets lost because there's only so much that a TV camera can capture, but these are peaceful protests by far by far we're talking probably less than 10 percent of the crowd that actually uh gets into any sort of scuffle with police at the end of the day and yes there was some uh looting in the early couple of days of protests here in washington but the last few days have seen the protests get bigger than they've ever been and also more peaceful and what ends up happening is maybe toward the ends of the night or the early morning hours there'll be a couple of people who are you know right along the fence line outside the white house that start to get into it with police uh, and unfortunately i think that overshadows what is generally a peaceful mm-hmm. protest. We saw, um, you know, thousands of people sit in the street peacefully outside the White House in a moment of silence for George Floyd and start singing. Those aren't the type of things that would normally warrant a police response on their own. This morning, topping headlines on this side of the border, Stats Canada releasing jobs numbers, uh, the worst since uh, 1982, I believe, uh, 38 years uh, down south. Numbers released, but I understand they're not uh, quite as uh, bad as anticipated. Yeah, not as bad as anticipated is probably the best we can hope for at this point. Uh, 13% unemployment. Some analysts had forecast it would rise to 20%. Now, there are still more than 20 million Americans out of work, so make no mistake about that. But what it shows is that uh, rehiring has actually started to take place as the, as the economy slowly starts to open back up. So you're seeing service industry workers, you're seeing travel and hospitality workers start to get hired back or come off of their temporary furlough. Jackson, curious because I've read some reports that there may be some high-powered Republicans behind the scenes sort of joining forces in against Donald Trump. Any truth to that that you've seen or heard of at this point? Well, what's happening is there uh, seems to be a line that was crossed in the sand this week when those peaceful protesters were gassed outside of the White House. That's really what it comes down to here. And you've had a number of Republicans sort of recoil in horror at that uh, or remain perfectly silent, which sometimes speaks volumes in and of itself. So you've had several uh, uh, former defense secretaries, uh, former presidents all come together with this unified message. You've got one Republican senator now, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who says she's not even sure she can vote for Trump again this fall. Uh, and And really, I think what it is, is it shows that uh, uh, the president may have crossed a line, may have gone too far with this. And his base may have actually wanted him to show some empathy for the protesters or show some sign that he's interested in reaching out to them and hearing their concerns. And he simply hasn't done that. Instead, he has, of course, threatened to call on the military, the cities across the U.S., and has actually done it in Washington, D.C. And those things run counter to the values uh, of individual freedom and liberty that a lot of Republicans and a lot of Americans in general hold dear. Really quickly here, uh, what's the weekend going to look like in Washington, D.C. as far as uh, curfews are concerned? Are they expected to stay in place? 
Last night was the first night without a curfew, and they're sort of taking it day by day here. There is talk of a massive march on the city tomorrow, and I think we'll get more details about that today. But I can tell you uh, they're sending home those outside troops who had been ordered uh, on standby in the region around the city, and it really seems like things are de-escalating. And one last note I'll leave you with is they have now put up more than two kilometers of fencing around the White House compound, Mm. massively expanding the security presence there. Thanks for the update, Jackson. Always appreciate it. Take care. Have a great weekend. That's Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. The Netflix documentary The Last Dance reveals the hyper-competitiveness of Michael Jordan during the 1990s. At a time of global crisis when collaboration is more important than competition in terms of ending the COVID-19 pandemic, what can we learn from this documentary? We're joined this morning by Associate Professor of Information and Media Studies at Western University, Ajit Payadi. Hi, Ajit. Hi. Okay, so how do we compare a basketball documentary to a pandemic? Uh, Great question. Um, You know, they seem to be, I guess, at first glance, uh, not related. But what I see is the is this uh, the phenomenon of hyper competitiveness that I think is something that that is a thread I see between both um, the approach that the United States taking in, in tackling the pandemic and someone like Michael Jordan, a revered and great athlete, no doubt. Uh, displays. Uh, And uh, it's something that, you know, while Jordan himself wouldn't claim to be a role model, uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of people uh, look up to him. Uh, And I think that the the, one of the messages that you get watching this documentary is that kind of anything goes, you know, bullying, intimidation are okay, as long as you're a winner, quote unquote. And in the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing that, you know, collaboration and cooperation are extremely important. In fact, kind of this uh, crazy competitive uh, nature of, of of life, of politics, and then we see it embodied in sports. Maybe there's a place for it in sports, but extended to society, and especially in times of crisis, doesn't really make a lot of sense at all. And it's very interesting because if you draw the parallel between sports and the pandemic or sports and politics for that matter, you can have victory through different methods. And if you were to draw the basketball analogy, you look at the Golden State Warriors of a couple of years back, they had several different players all sharing the ball, and then you move to the Bulls in their heyday with Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. So two different styles, but in the case of the last dance, he was in charge, and what Michael Jordan said uh, was law. Right, right. And, and with, with Jordan, it, the, the way he led, again, was, was through this kind of uh, fear that he instilled in, in his teammates. And I think that there's something telling, I forget which episode it was, whether five or six in, in the series, where he does break down and, and cry under the end of where he's talking about, you know, how, you know, my, my teammates didn't understand that I pushed them, uh, you know, to, to get to this point, because if they get it from me, and feel that heat for me, they're going to face the pressure. They'll be able to face the pressure uh, in, the, in, say, a, a big-time moment during a playoff game or in, in uh, the championship race. But um, it's, it's maybe, I'm sure that's probably a, you know, real emotions that Jordan is showing for sure, but it's something where, where there are other ways to lead as well. Uh, and it's not that the idea of you know, winning, quote-unquote, is, is wrong per se. I'm not, not saying that. To win, you know, we can debate that. But winning in terms of defeating something, obviously you want to defeat this, this pandemic and, and overcome it. Um, but there are different models for that. And, and sports, like you say, the, war, the Warriors are an example that was a, a more of a team-first approach, even though you've got transcendent superstars like uh, Clay Thompson, mm-hmm. Steph Curry, etc. The Bulls, you know, they were an ensemble to degree, but really it was kind of about Jordan exerting his will on that team. And there's a lot of resentment against him. Uh, and, and I know that 
I've read some other uh, articles. There's an author, uh, a journalist, a sports journalist, Dave Zirin, who talks about contrast Bill Russell's style with Michael Jordan's style. When we forget about Bill Russell, he was before my time. Uh, you know, the great Celtics dynasty of the 60s. And, and uh, he was a beloved teammate. He was beloved by, by his teammates and kind of was very, very team first. Uh, and Jordan, it was like uh, the team kind of sort of came along with him, right? And, and uh, that's kind of the way that he describes it that I found interesting. If you make that analogy, though, I mean, wouldn't that necessarily be a good thing for Donald Trump in the United States? Because Michael Jordan, you know, he asserted his will and, and they were winners. So, you know, if Trump is is the same, maybe mm-hmm. that makes them winners as well, the Americans. Yeah, I guess the question is, what, is it, what does it really mean to win? Uh, and I think in, in America, <laughs> being being the large empire, you know, that it is and uh, there is this obsession. I'm an American as well, sort of disclaimer. I'm, I'm dual Canadian-American, so I grew up in California, and, and uh, I, I spent the first 30-plus years of my life in the States. So I'm very familiar with this kind of weird number one mentality, but it's it's pretty hollow. I mean, uh, that you know, what, what does that really mean? You know, number one at what? And I think that this COVID-19 pandemic is showing in the U.S. that there's so many uh, fractures and fault lines, partisanship, uh, racial division, uh, extreme inequality, that if you can, you know, what does winning mean? Would winning mean, in this case, overcoming the pandemic in the, in the sense that uh, low, low death numbers and, and things like that in the U.S. are seeing it you know, surpassing 100,000? Um, people can't even agree on wearing masks. Uh, they can't coordinate federal and state and uh, local policies together. And to me, that's just a huge failing, right? So I think the question is, what, you know, how do you, if you're going to even use the word winning, quote-unquote, in this case, how do you define it? And I think I would define it in a, in a more cooperative way. And the U.S. Is, is failing in that regard. It's an interesting comparison for sure. Uh, one drama playing out on Netflix, the other on Fox News. So uh, pick the one you <laughs> want to watch. Thanks for joining us, Ajit. Appreciate your time. Sure. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Ajit Payadi, Associate Professor of Information and Media Studies at Western University. 909 on the morning news. Over 50 countries now mandate wearing masks in public. During the current pandemic, wearing a protective mask signifies a commitment to the social and collective good of society. But does that perception change when a face mask is worn by someone of color? We're joined by Professor of Sociology, Wilfrid Laurier University, Jasmine Zine. Am I saying your last name correctly, Jasmine? Uh, It's Zine. Jasmine Zine joins us now on the morning (laughs) news. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is, is a very interesting question posed in the introduction. We wear these masks and we think that we're doing the right thing. And uh, you look at somebody saying, oh, there's a responsible individual. But what if the person wearing the mask is color? Is it is it different, that perception? Well, yes. I you know, wrote a recent op-ed in the conversation about this very matter as to, you know, when people are asked, and mandated more and more now to wear masks in public as a protective mechanism from the transmission of the virus. What happens when, you know, the mask is worn by uh, someone who is Asian or a black man? Or what happens in the case where you're a Muslim woman who wears a niqab or a face veil? And that is outlawed in certain jurisdictions. At the same time, people are being mandated to wear masks in those same places. And so I was, you know, interested in examining the racial politics behind wearing masks and how the meanings attached to that change according to who's wearing it. 
And you spoke to some people while you were, when you were writing this op-ed and, and talk to us about some of the experiences. I mean, you talk about a, a black physician in Boston and his struggle with wearing the mask and what it meant to him. Yes. Well, I was, you know, looking at uh, work that actually a lot of black men were writing about the fact that, well, you know, wearing a mask actually labels them as suspicious. So instead of being seen as a good citizen who's upholding public health, they're actually seen as a public menace when they put on a a mask. And that, um, you know, one black doctor was wearing a surgical mask and was handcuffed outside of his home by police. And we're certainly aware now of the very tragic uh, killing and murder of Ahmed Arbery, George Floyd in the United States. And so this is just another reminder of uh, the kinds of racial fears and anxieties that are animated when black men wear masks uh, because of the kind of racial histories that produce these kinds of encounters, right? So there is that sense of being feared um, when you put on a mask and being seen as suspicious and being seen as a threat. And that led even to, you know, a uh, uh, something called tipping the mask, which was uh, something that some black clergy, clergy and police in Illinois were suggesting that people tip their mask when they go into a shop so that the shopkeepers um, get a sense of who they are and to mitigate, you know, potential racial fears and violence. But that's simply calling upon racialized bodies to reveal themselves first as safe in order to avoid bias and and endangerment. And, you know, so I argue that this is something that, you know, also Asian, um, you know, people who are wearing masks have to face also a history of racism around being seen as the source of the contagion and as pandemic starters or foreign disease carriers when they wear a mask. And, of course, when we talk about these surgical masks, whatever, if it's the cotton one or the N95 that are wearing, that's the face covering that we're talking about now. But uh, it's nothing new in society and even in in Canada, for that matter, when it comes to covering your face and uh, people having, you know, um, either opinions about it or influencing even lawmakers uh, when it comes to, for example, Muslim women, women in our country. Exactly. So in Quebec with Bill 21, uh, you know, Muslim women who wear a niqab or cover their face, and there's a very small um, uh, number of Muslim women who choose that as a matter of, uh, you know, expressing their faith and identity, they find themselves in breach of the law and actually denied access to social services, despite government requests for, you know, public face covering due to the pandemic. It's really fascinating. I, I hadn't thought of it, but I mean, you, you know, white people, I've never seen a white person have to tip their mask when they go into a store so that somebody can have a look at their face. But it makes sense that that would be the perception again, that, you know, this is why you can understand why black people are fighting for what they're fighting for in the States and here in Canada, that if they have to tip their mask, it's just another example of, of not trusting and, and just viewing people differently because of the color of their skin. Yeah, and that actually that tipping the mask campaign was actually spearheaded by some black clergy and they were concerned Mm -hmm. one of them had said to their son, you know, put on your mask when you're in the store so that they see that, you know, you're wearing this for a purpose. You're not coming in as a masked, you know, um, uh, bandit or something. Right. So you have to then uh, as a racialized person deal with the stereotypes first. 
Um, similarly, if you are Asian and you're wearing the mask, you're seen as a foreign disease carrier. And in fact, one of my former students, when she read my article recently, actually uh, wrote and said, you know, this is her dilemma all the time as an Asian person to whether she wears the mask and is facing potential, you know, uh, harassment and violence because there's been such an upsurge in anti-Asian racism. Um, or, you know, does she not wear it and then risk contracting the virus? Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of decisions that, you know, racialized bodies have to make. As a Muslim woman, you're covering your face, but you are also now seen as an outlaw while everyone else is seen as a responsible citizen for covering their face. Jasmine, your article released a couple of days ago on theconversation.com. I'm wondering, what was the uh, inspiration behind it for you? Was it just an exploration or or do you hope uh, that it can affect change? Uh, Where do you want it to go? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, for me, uh, because I work in in racism, doing studies on racism and Islamophobia, these were uh, issues that I saw unfolding. And so I hope it does bring some awareness, because as I mentioned at the end of the article, when we talk about the cultural politics behind wearing masks, it's exposing the racial fault lines of the pandemic. And I think that one of the things that's become quite clear during this pandemic are those racial fault lines that are pre-existing but have been exposed um, during this crisis. So it's another opportunity uh, for examination of these issues and then thinking about how do we shift towards changing these um, stereotypes and perceptions. Because we've seen, you know, especially very powerfully and and tragically in the United States, how racial, uh, historically rooted racial encounters can produce, um, you know, very violent uh, outcomes. Well, when we spur conversation, hopefully it ends with better understanding. So thank you for this yes. conversation. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That's Jasmine Zine, professor of sociology at Wilfrid Laurier University. I've never would have thought of that. I, well, we wouldn't because we're white. We don't have to worry about those no, kinds of issues. No, absolutely not. I, I get that 100%. And even the, the pulling down the masks, I do see the other side in that if I run a store... You might say to to everyone, but who knows, you know, how much they're enforcing it to pull that mask down to maybe get you on the video camera if you're coming into my store because you, you, you're you anonymous. And we know that wearing a mask is a, is a different experience, but... Mm-hmm. I, I I never I never thought of it in these terms. Fascinating. It's 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 certainly spurred a whole lot of conversations for a whole lot of people and a lot more understanding, hopefully for all of us, of what other people have to go through. Different time, isn't it? Seven nineteen seven seventy CHQR along with Calgary Co-op has been asking for you to nominate community champions, someone that you know in your world that's gone the extra mile during this difficult time that we've been experiencing. We're joined this morning by Darlene Faw, who's nominating her neighbor. Hi, Darlene. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for nominating your neighbor, Brent Dancy. Tell us about Brent. Well, Brent Brent is actually um, a true community champion, I would say. He is the epitome of, he defines the definition of of community champions. Uh, We lived here for 22 years, and Brent has been our neighbor for 15. And now we are very much seniors, and he's just always there for us. Always there for you? Give us some examples. Well, actually, it didn't just start during COVID. Um, years ago, Brent uh, dressed up like a Santa at Christmas time and would bring <laughs> us treats. And not only that, he did that for the whole community. We had neighbors with young children. He would buy gifts and take them over Christmas Eve to the children. And then, of course, drop something off for us as well. And not only that, when my dad was almost 100, we had a big family Christmas party. And Brent was there as the Santa. 
with his wife as an elf and giving out gifts. He's just done so many things, done snow removal for us. We are a corner lot, as are they, and um, little little things all the way, all the way along. Uh, for example, Calgary is a very windy city, as you know. Mm-hmm. had a flying umbrella one year. Brent came over and rescued that for me. Uh, just about a week ago in our torrential rain, we had water running over our eaves. I was up on a 15-foot ladder, and Brent saw it. Over he came and, of course, uh, finished the job for us. Um, another little example of uh, one time bringing over a barbecue uh, connection so we would know how much we had in our tank. So he's just helped us all along the way with so many things. Always pleasant, bringing goodies over like smoked salmon, um, bringing supplies over for us during the COVID. Um, He's always ready to help. In fact, I'm thinking that he is one of the reasons that we as seniors have been able to stay in our home. Wow. Well, you won the the great neighbor lottery, didn't you, to have someone like Brent and and for him stepping up, you know, all the time, but really, you know, during this difficult time as well. So he's a hero to you and your husband then. He's an actual hero. In fact, even just a couple of days ago, my husband lost his keys. We were looking for them outside, and out comes Brent to help us look. So, I mean, he's always there for us. He's a definite hero for us. Darling, I think everybody could use a Brent in uh, our life. Maybe give us his phone number so we can. Um, but thank you so much uh, for taking the time to nominate Brent as the community champion. Now he's in the running. Well, we prize. certainly appreciate him very much. And I know whoever will be chosen will be a good uh, candidate, but Brent certainly is a hero for us. Excellent. Thank you very much, Darlene. Most welcome. That is Darlene Faw, our nominator of Brent Dancy. And what a great story. And like she said, it's not like it just flipped the switch and started when COVID-19 happened. Mm-hmm. He has been there for her and her family for years. If you would like to nominate a community champion, it can be a person, a group, someone who's gone over and above that extra mile. One lucky champion at the end of this is going to receive a $350 gift card to Calgary Co-op delivered right to your door or their door by the 770 CHQR Community Cruiser powered by Bow West Appliance.